I'm John Ronson, and you're listening to the World Is Wrong podcast. Here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about John Ronson. Uh, the world, the world, the world is not wrong about John Ronson, but we, he's our guest. He's our New Year's guest, and uh, we're we're going to be talking about two films that. He wrote the screenplay for Okja and Frank. Frank and Okja. Okja and Frank. And also about a film that he suggested that the world is wrong about called Pride. And yeah, no, the world is the world is very I, I guess the world could be more right about John Ronson. In preparation for this, I listened to a bunch of his podcasts that I hadn't listened to before and even realized that some of them I had listened to before because they played on public radio at at certain points uh, just as radio series and uh, I guess that's what podcasts were before there were podcasts they were just short radio series Um, yeah but uh, so uh, that's what's coming up as a a nice discussion with him Brian you weren't able to make it uh, to that conversation yeah why don't you like John Ronson? <laughs> you know, I feel like when it's three people talking, I just kind of disappear and I just want to listen to the conversation, which I'm glad I, I did because that's what, you know, it's just listening to you guys talk. It's uh, this is this is exciting. I'm excited to hear it. OK, well, why don't we uh, why don't we go to that and maybe I'll play a clip. If I'm going to play a clip, then I'm going to leave this in and say, listen to the clip. And then we'll be back afterwards to talk about what we talked about. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. You can write a song about anything. Yeah? Yeah. Like your socks here. They're pretty original. Hey, look at this. It's a little tuft in the carpet. I wonder how old he is in carpet years. Is it spring? Hmm. He's the first to wake, or is he old? But still strong enough to keep what winter wants to take. Moon standing tuft. Lonely little carpet tough, a twisted woolly a Joshua tree, surrounded by its fallen friends, alone in threadbare woven field, lone standing tuft. Defy the Welcome to the World is Wrong podcast, John Ronson. Hi, how are you doing? I am great and so glad to be speaking with you. In recent episodes, we covered two films that you were involved in the writing process on. We did an episode about Frank, and we did an episode about Okja. And so having you here to discuss these films and maybe some other things, is just great for me. So why don't we just start off with talking about the film Frank, which I love so much. 
Sure, thank you. And it's a pleasure. Yeah, I heard, I think you tagged me into an Instagram post and it's not often that people discuss Frank, so I listened and, and enjoyed it very much and, and you know, was I, I really liked the fact that you thought about the writing of the film and and so when you reached out to me, I, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm rarely asked to talk about Frank and... It, and I, I, it was such an interesting process writing it, and I liked the film so much. I, you know, I thought it'd be nice to, to talk to you. Well, now I, my research, you know, is is through the internet, and so I'm sure it has lots of holes in it. But my understanding is that you were a part of Frank Sidebottom's band show. Yes, in the eighties, I was the I was the entertainment officer at my college, the Polytechnic of Central London, and I was sitting in the uh, in the office one day, and the phone rang, um, and the the guy said, "We're supposed to be playing tonight, but our keyboard players had a breakdown, and we can't make it, and we're going to have to cancel unless you know any keyboard players." And I heard myself say. I play keyboards, <laughs> uh, and he said, "Well, you're in." And I said, uh, "I don't know any of your songs." And he said, "Can you play C, F, and G?" <laughs> uh, and, and I said, "Which happens, luckily, to tally with the three notes I could play." Uh, so I said yes, and that's how I got to join the band. And I was in the band for a couple of years, and uh, so yeah. Hmm, that story seems incredibly familiar. I feel like I've right. seen that somewhere before. Where was that? Uh, well, it's it's one of the few. It's it's it, it's one occasion where the where the film matches the reality quite well. There aren't that many occasions when the film does that, uh, but that is one. So you, so I, I, that makes me really wonder how much you say that that's the only time where the events matched, but is not the only time. But, but, you know, one of the few times. But it's, it's, it's really odd because when you watch it, you're thinking so much about it being a tell, a sort of a retelling of the Frank Sidebottom story in a, a new and interesting way. But it's also pretty autobiographical. I'm sure not entirely, but was that... When you watch the film, do you feel like this tells my story of like on the emotional level of what it was like to engage with Frank Sidebottom. Yes, that uh, on an on an emotional level, yeah. Well, I rewatched it, the film not so long ago, and I, it's surprising. Like the John in the film is definitely the the very worst version of me, but and it was really fun to to write the very worst version of yourself. Um, but I was surprised by how much of me, you know, my, my sort of darkest thoughts and so on were in that character. So I felt it was really uh, emotionally resonant to what I went through, but uh, went through as if it was trauma. <laughs> now, of, what I, of those couple of years of my life, which weren't traumatic at all, they were fantastic. Um, but also the fact that in in Frank, Clara takes a immediate, and John feels totally mystifying hate hate towards him, 
Um, she just despises him for reasons John can't figure out at all. And there was a member of Frank Sidebottom's band who, who similarly hated me for what I considered to be unfathomable reasons. So there was so a bunch of real life things happen in very different ways in the film. So how long were you in the in in that unit? About I don't know a couple of years on and off. Wow! And uh, yeah, it was good. It was great. Um, I, I, we toured in the north of England. We were playing to a couple of thousand people a night. Uh, that would tail off as we went further south. But then when we got to London, lots of people came. And it was just a magical experience. Like I wrote at the time, nothing makes a young man feel more alive and on an adventure than driving down the motorway, sitting next to a man wearing a big fake head at two o'clock in the morning. Uh, I, it was like being plucked from from the suburbs to join this, you know, this mad band, like like Alice with the Looking Glass. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I I said it on the podcast when we covered it. I just feel like this the film captures so many of the mm. dynamics of being in a band in a way that films I want to say never do, but I'll just be generous and say rarely do. Yeah, a few people have said that. Um, it's funny. I I think the the sort of dynamics between the band members. Um, wasn't something that we were thinking about accurately creating. I, I think it just came out. Um, so that's good. That's that's something good that we didn't plan for. Uh, but that moment when when John is is pushed on stage at the beginning of the film and then plays the show, and then Frank just turns his great head around to stare at John. Mm-hmm. That's like. That feels very emotion, very kind of true emotionally to my experience. That moment of someone from another planet connect, you know, taking an interest in you or connecting with you in some way, but also mysteriously because he's wearing a big fake head, so you don't know what he looks like underneath. So now you've been you've kind of you've been played by Damon Hall Gleason and Ewan McGregor. Mm. Yeah, both Jeddah. My name is Bob Wilton. I'm a journalist. I've been investigating a story about a classified government program. So what you're saying is that you were a a psychic spy. A Jedi warrior. I'd heard that the U.S. government was training psychic soldiers and that Lynn Cassidy was the best of the best. I've been reactivated. I'm on a mission. I could come. Lynn's story was unbelievable, crazy, and completely true. You have to dream a new America that no longer has an exploitative view of everyone. You will be a psychic weapon. Feel it, yeah! You must create warrior monks who can pass through walls and see into the future. Congratulations, Scotty. Sorry it doesn't work out between you two. How does that feel? Uh, I mean, great. I never anticipated anything like that happening. Are those um, the only two sort of autobiographical roles of yours that have ended up embodied on film, or are there others that are hidden that we could look for? No, there, there was a few that reached certain levels of 
development but but never got made but so these are the only two that got made well it makes sense because of the your writing and your journalism is so immersive and personal it makes you really relate to the to the character to the character at the center of these odd detective stories yeah well i think my my writing is it's like it's narrative it's narrative non-fiction so it's like storytelling so i think that's what interests film people i think that there's already a, a sort of narrative momentum happening in the stories and that's what people are looking to do in films so coming back to frank you had this experience when you were just coming out of college mm-hmm. a, a young man and how yeah. long, like, it, this film didn't come out for, for decades. Right. What was the gestation period? How long were you carrying the story around before you realized, oh, I need to write this? Oh, I wasn't carrying the story around at all. Uh, what happened was I was, um, I was in the park with my son. I can't remember the year. It was probably around 2006, maybe. Uh, 2005 and uh, and the phone rang and it was and it was Frank Sidebottom but I hadn't spoken to him in years maybe even decades uh, and uh, he said that he was planning uh, some, like he had he hadn't been Frank Sidebottom for many years he'd he'd retired the character and he'd gone to work as an animator um, but now he wanted to bring the character back out of retirement and would I write something in, in, uh, about my memories of being in his band and it would help him bring the character out of retirement. So I said, yes. Mm-hmm. So I wrote, I wrote a, like a 2,000-word story in The Guardian and that coincided with Peter Strawn was writing the Menisteric Goats screenplay at the time, so I'd got to know him. And we were working together at, at the time um, or not working together because Peter wrote the goat screenplay alone. But, you know, we got to know each other. And when he read my story about Frank Sidebottom, he, he said that he had always wanted to do a music biopic. And his idea had been to take someone like Captain Beefheart and have him happening 20 or 30 years earlier. Um, what would that be like? And uh, he said, but your idea is better. <laughs> but I, I didn't know what he was talking about because I didn't have an idea. But I think what he meant was uh, being in a band with somebody who wears a big fake head that they never take off. So it was Peter's idea and, and we set about writing it. Mm. And so, and when was this? This would, like, 2000s, early 2000s? So mid, mid-2000s. We, I think we wrote a little bit in, in London... Just, you know, I'd spend a few weeks writing some scenes and I'd send it to Peter and uh, he would write a few scenes and send them back to me. And then when we went to the set, the Men Hysteric Goats set in Puerto Rico, we did a whole bunch of writing. We sat at the hotel and um, did a whole lot of thinking and writing about it. And then we did it in earnest. I want to keep going on the following the narrative of Frank, but I do have to ask a question because I've spent time on many sets and I have I I have an experience. My experience of film is that there's something. 
I don't want to get too woo-woo. The words that I will use are woo-woo, but just consider them to be just sort of psychological words in the sense of that there's a spell that gets created. Everyone is focusing on this thing. It gets captured on film, and then it lives, and that has all kinds of psychic impacts mm. for those involved. And with a film like Men Who Stare at Goats that is so odd and psychedelic and, you know, I don't want to say forward-thinking, but forward-thinking, reaching in all of what it's trying to do. I'm so curious about what that set was like in terms of you have all these actors buying into this idea and you have all these people buying into this idea. Was that... I assume you've been on other sets. Was there something... Did the spell or the oddness of the story of men who stare at goats, did you feel that in the creative process on well, the set. Well, it had been the first time I'd visited a set and Peter and I arrived the night before uh, and we went to the hotel and somebody, I can't remember who it was, uh, but somebody said to me, the most exciting day of your life is your first day on a Hollywood movie set and the most boring day of your life is your second day. Uh, and and yeah. so, it, so it transpired. We turned up. It was, a, it was really interesting because it was a disused chemical factory in Puerto Rico um, near a rainforest. So the, so the location was so interesting. Uh, and there were still, like, signs on the walls that said emergency eye wash and stuff. Uh, and um, uh, but the thing is, like everything you say is 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 true, and you put it so beautifully about some kind of alchemy happening somehow on a film set. Um, but I, I didn't experience. It. I I don't know. Um, for me, being on the film set, it, it, what it's really like is like being on a construction site. There's a huge number of people mm -hmm. working really hard and you aren't. You're the only one who's not because your work is done. You've written the screenplay. So you inevitably end up sitting next to the producers or the hair and makeup people who are the other people who aren't like running massively around doing stuff that you can't fathom. So, uh, and the, the whole DP department... Um, are, are working incredibly hard with the lighting people. Uh, um, the actors are sitting around. I mean, they're so used to this. They're so used to being on film sets where they sit around for four hours to work for 10 minutes. Um, mm -hmm. But but they're doing something, you know, as, as the screenplay writers say. So when mm -hmm. you first turn up, everyone's really excited to see you and everyone was, you know, really nice to us. And George Clooney especially was a very welcoming, lovely person. Um, but then after we've been there for a few hours, you start to get the creeping sense that you shouldn't, you shouldn't be there anymore. You're the only one who's not working. Um you're only there as a just just to experience it. Uh, so we didn't go back after the next day. Me and Peter, we just uh, stayed at the stayed at the hotel working on Frank. So okay, that, so now you're so you're working on Frank, and when yeah. when uh, Men Who Stare at Goats is wrapped, do you have a finished first draft? Oh, we only visited the set for like three days. It was, yeah, it was just because oh, okay. just because we wanted to. You know, you just want to experience. Yeah, you want to 
You want to see you it. Yeah, see you, it. You, yeah, you want you want it to be a memory that you had. Uh, did uh, did you and McGregor pull you aside and try and you know actor no, you like? Uh, not not at all. And and neither did Donald Gleason. Um, it's Donald, by the way. I know it's a really hard name to. Oh, pronounce. thank you. Thank. Yeah. This is great. Please, for for the sake right. of all of our listeners, uh, can't say that one more time. Uh, Donal. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah. Boy. That's uh, right. Well, uh, <laughs> the world is wrong, and that includes us sometimes. So. Right. I, I, while we're on the subject, I'm not accusing you of this, but just Americans in general. It's not Edinburgh. It's Edinburgh. Oh, I know that one. I know that. I spent some okay. time in Edinburgh. So all you need to do to cor- correctly uh, pronounce something uh-huh. is go someplace or be with that person. Okay. But uh, yes, right. th- thank you for correcting. Are there any other peeves um, that you feel like we were... We actually, could- yeah, there's, there's, there's one other thing, because when I listened to the Frank podcast, you were discussing, like, how do you pronounce the band's name? And nobody in the film can pronounce the band's name. But actually, when they check in at South by Southwest and the, the women behind the desk uh, welcoming them, uh, she gets the name completely right. It is Soren Perfurbs. Oh, well, I, yeah, I, I wrote that with thinking of, of just how efficient people are in America and, and that they would get it right. <laughs> well, that's uh, this is this is all uh, very useful to to the cinematic uh, record. This will this will help us a lot. Can I tell you also uh, how, how we came up with the name? Uh, oh. The band had a yeah, this is funny. The band had a pretty generic um, name for, for the first few drafts, which I always knew, you know, we had to change. Um, and I, and I emailed Lenny, Lenny was, as the director was on board by, by then. And I, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if, if they had a band that was, if they had a name that was impossible to pronounce or, or say or spell. Um, so I emailed Lenny and I said, I don't know, something like, and I literally just typed out and, it, and, it, and sent it to Lenny and, uh, that that was the band's name, the Southern Perfurbs. That was just what came out as I typed, without even looking at the keyboard. One of many favorite details about this film. It, that's that's right. one of those things that it just, mm-hmm. like, if you've been in that world, like, it's not the same, but there is something about the kind of people who name their bands things that are going to be alienating. And right. yeah. that's the ultimate expression of that. I just, I loved it. Uh, yeah, there was a band in, there was a band in the 80s, a new romantic band called Fr. Uh, and, uh, but, but, but their band, but the name Fr only didn't exist. It, the band was, was a symbol. So you, you finished the script. When did, because the team around it, the team that came together around this film, whether it's the actors, the director the composer, it's, it's a dream team, not in the terms of like, oh, the biggest names ever, but everyone is so just perfect in it. When did the, did, was that a Lenny, was that Lenny Abramson? When does, when does the team start to come together around this film? Uh, We, uh, um, I think me and Peter had written maybe three or four drafts, I think, just the two of us. And then every so often we'd send it into Film 4, who was financing the the film, um, or co-financing. Um, but we're solely financing the development. Uh, and eventually, 
You know what happens? It's funny. Uh, your first few meetings with the film, with film four, you get Catherine, who's like the head of development, Catherine Butler. Um, you know, there's there's been a shift. Like like the script's got better enough that you go in there and it, and Tessa Ross comes in, who's the head of film for. And there was a day when like Tess, when someone just casually said, oh, Tessa will be joining you. And that's like code word for this film's going to get made. Like if, if the head of film for takes an interest, then you know, you know, suddenly the wind is starting to blow behind your sails. So, so we had a meeting with Tessa and... And she said, um, she said, look, you know, the script's ready to go to directors. There's um, two ways you can go. You can set, you can send it into Hollywood, and who knows what will happen. Or you can get a, an interesting director from over here or in Ireland. And um, and I'd watched Lenny's um, first film, Adam and Paul. I thought it was yeah, wonderful, and so we asked. So we met Lenny um, and uh, uh, met him at Hogwarts because one of the producers was working on Harry Potter, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, and yeah, and so that's how Lenny got involved, and then worked with us on the next two or three drafts. And did you have actors in mind when you were writing it? How did the how did the casting come together? Not not at all. Um, and in fact, I don't really even know. Um, I just we just heard uh, that Michael Fassbender had read the script and really liked it, and Lenny was attached to the film by then. Uh, in fact, Michael Fassbender would have read a script that Lenny had worked on with us too and really liked the script. And obviously, Lenny is such an admired director, uh, in Ireland especially, uh, at the time. Uh, I think the two things were enough for Michael Fassbender to feel, you know, they want to get involved. And then once he was involved, then it becomes like a tipping point. Uh, the same thing happened with The Many Stare Goats. Once George Clooney had got involved, it's like everything then becomes ex- just very easy. Right. Now... Yeah. The the music, one of the things that makes this film work so well is that the music is handled just perfectly, I think. And mm-hmm. so when does the, I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now. You'll put Stephen Merritt, is that uh, right? Remix. When he, when did, when did the music... Uh, become a part of this film because it seemed it, it had to have been before production, right? Yeah, uh, no, well, uh, that's really interesting. Yes, uh, so in in our early drafts, I, w- I had this idea w- which uh, was a bad idea that the band this is why you should never let writers make music decisions because uh, I had an idea that the band would be the music that the band would play would be just impossible to to listen to just so strange that it would be unlistenable to uh, and i remember tessa saying john you know people are going to be going to the cinema to see this film like you want them to listen to music that they don't want to listen to so i thought that was a very good point and and uh, i think an original idea was to ask uh different musicians to write different songs 
and I think we got like some some yeses. I think even Tom Waits said he'd write a song uh, for us. And Daniel Johnston, we asked, and Dan and Frank is inspired so much by Daniel Johnston. Um, obviously, that would have been great. Um, and he was considering it. And other people were offering us songs like big bands. Uh, and then Lenny just had the idea. I think Lenny was worried. I remember him saying, like, what would happen if it, if we get to the day of filming that scene and Tom Waits hasn't sent the song? Uh, like, what would happen then? And so I think he was worried about losing control. And, and that felt like a really, you know, that was a good idea on his part. And he just asked a guy who we'd known since school, Stephen, to do the music. And he did an, just an inc- just a beautiful job, just perfect, making it strange enough that what I wanted was in there, that the band wouldn't be easy. Mm-hmm. Serious too, like I wanted the band, I, like we always wanted the band to be, to take themselves very seriously. Like I felt that was important, like craft work or something. Um, and Peter had brought in the whole idea of of it being a little bit like when Captain Beefheart sort of kidnapped his band and took them to some house in the middle of nowhere and forced them to eat, you know, tiny handfuls of beans a day uh, while he recorded Trout Mask Replica. So, so Peter brought all of that into it too. And yeah, Stephen just brought all of those different ideas together so well with music that was just so beautiful. And, and the last song, I, I Love You All, is... It's just an incredible song. Uh, yeah, every every yeah. note, every there isn't a there isn't a wrong musical note in it. And I don't mean just the no, the notes particularly, but just the vibe. Mm. Like it's the thing that mo, that makes me check out of most movies about a band is that it, right. And I think that I think it, it was a really great idea. Not even though it'd be cool to hear what Tom Waits or Daniel Johnston or these people would write for it. I think there's also a part when you know that, then you're watching thinking, oh, cool, mm. this is the Tom Waits song. And you don't want that. You want no. to believe that this, and you really believe that this is coming from the band. Now, did the band, it really looks like the band are all playing the music, but I, yeah. I, I don't want to believe that that's, I want to believe that that's true, but I can't believe it is. Is it? No, that, yeah, that's true. It's all performed live. So Maggie Gyllenhaal is the keyboard player in that band. Yeah, and she and she learned how to play a theremin. Phenomenal. Which apparently is no mean feat. It, it isn't. Uh, yeah, so so yeah. she learned to play Francois and Clara uh the 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 guitarist and the drummer. They are musician musicians first or are they actors first? Francois I don't know. Um I mean, I know he's a musician, but I don't. I don't know um, about the acting first, or yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Carla Azar, she is a like a really accomplished musician. Uh, she's in Jack White's band, um, and she has her own band, Auto Lux, and and is a. So she became. So she was the most like like the only real proper musician in the band I think and, and so she became like the musical director to, to an extent on the sets I believe I should say that some of these things I've heard through Lenny telling stories because 
Peter and I only visited the set. Actually, I don't think Peter. I don't think Peter visited the set. Oh no, he did. I visited the set with my son in New Mexico, um, and I watched a couple of scenes being filmed that actually were cut from the from the film in the end. Uh, and Peter visited the set in Ireland. Uh, but um, but yeah, but so I'm telling you stories about things that I didn't see firsthand. It's perfect because anyone who's ever had a band knows that if your drummer's good, the rest of you can be good enough. Yeah. And like, that's the one thing you can't fake is a great drummer. Yeah. And she's incredible. I mean, people all know her. People listening to this will know her from, from Jack White's band. She, she's really incredible. So the band comes together, the, the, the crew, the, the team comes together. Uh-huh. You said that there were things that were cut out. I mean, the film is great as it is. I don't feel like that it's missing anything. But are there aspects of the story that you hoped would get in there that didn't get in there specifically and maybe were just alluded to in the film? To my memory, there was... There were three big scenes that were cut, and and all all of them were really good scenes, but all of them were cut for legitimate reasons, which were always to do with pacing. So there was mm-hmm. an so there was an extended scene. Uh, so so the band picks John up from from the service station. <laughs> the band picks John up from the service station just as it is in the film, and they start to drive. And John is looking at Frank's head, like just examining the head. And he looks in the ear hole and he can see Frank's eye, like staring out at him through the ear hole. Like a a Jurassic Park or something. (laughs) And then John, like, John startles. And then Frank beckons him, like, and John puts his his ear to Frank's mouth and Frank says, help me. (laughs) And John realizes that that Frank's been kidnapped and at the service, they stop at the service station and Frank says he's been kidnapped by the woman. And, uh, and, And so John and Frank set off into the forests together on on the run uh, from the band who had kidnapped Frank and then they're in the forests and, and, it, and it's kind of like, you know, deliverance or something and or winter's bone and they've got no money and and they reach a clearing and there's some, um, some uh, truck drivers in the clearing and Frank tells the truck drivers that John has kidnapped him. So now the truck drivers uh, are chasing John and attack John. And then the band come and rescue John and Frank. And Scoop's character, Don, says to John, don't worry, everyone kidnaps Frank eventually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was all cut. And um, I love the moment when Frank starts to think that John's kidnapped him. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, that was all cut. And then there was two scenes at the end, uh, which were cut, which were the two scenes that that I went to the set of, and one was John trying to find his creativity in the desert, like he's still trying to write the perfect song, and now he's in the deserts of New Mexico, so he decides to take ayahuasca, and there's a whole scene of John in the desert taking ayahuasca. <laughs> 
do, do you want to know what what happens? Yes, yes, please. Okay, so he's um, um, he goes to see a shaman, and the shaman is is you know makes makes the potion, and gives it to John, and John goes off into the desert to try and find the music within him, and as the ayahuasca takes hold, all the sound cuts out. It's just silence. Like John has gone to his, to to the, his. What's the line he uses? Is like his most jagged edge, his furthest edge, mm-hmm. to find the music. And what's there is nothing. Just silence. Uh, so that was one scene that we cut. Um, and the and the other scene that we cut. And these were always for the same reasons, which was just pacing, mm-hmm. like the film was slowing down. And the other scene we cut was oh yeah john when john's trying to find frank and he's using twitter to find frank um he ends up somebody sends him to this um crazy you know this kind of crazy place it's like deliverance or something and there's like a guy i think this bit's in the film do you remember there's like a guy like a scary looking you know redneck guy or sort of hill Mm -hmm. hillbilly guy um anyway there was a whole scene between john and him that we cut uh, John says, I'm looking for Frank. Where's a big fake head? <laughs> and, um, and the guy says, he's, he's in the barn. And he says, come, come with me, he's in the barn. And now John is like being walked to the barn by these really scary Winter's Bone type people. <laughs> and he, and he says, it was like that scene in Goodfellas where Robert De Niro's beckoning... Um, um, oh, I've forgotten her name. Um, in Goodfellas, the, 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 the Pesci, the Pesci, when the day that Pesci gets made, no, no, Ray Liotta's <laughs> wife. In, um, oh, yeah, from yeah, when he calls from, her, from the Sopranos, yeah. when he said, Go, there's um, there's there's some furs down there, just go down there, there's some furs, and she doesn't know whether she's being sent to her death or not. Do you remember that scene? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what we were doing in that scene. Like, Frank's in the barn, Frank's in the barn, come, come with us. And John doesn't know whether Frank really is in the barn or whether they're taking him to the barn to do some terrible, you know, farm horror. Um, and he goes in the barn and there's a scarecrow in the barn with a head that looks a little bit like Frank's head and they were just playing a trick on him. So we got that scene as well. <laughs> well, when they when this film gets the rediscovery it deserves, and they release the Blu-ray with all the extras, maybe we can maybe we can look forward to seeing these scenes. To to be honest, I think that Halcyon world exists now because I think that there is a Frank Blu-ray or certainly DVD, and I think it does have at least one or two of those. Maybe not all of those deleted scenes, but one or two of them. I want to see the kidnapping scene. That's the one I'm. I'm. I'm right. the most. It was really about. funny, but really stupid. I mean, it was obvious when I rewatched the film quite recently. Um, I thought, well, of course we had to cut that scene, because. Oh no! It's it's really yeah. good. The 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 pacing, it, getting them on exactly, the road. Exactly, they're, they're on the road. You know, the film's begun. 
you want to get them to the house. You don't want to have this weird digression at that moment in the film. Like, its reason for being cut was so legitimate. And I, and I, um, I guess those are the only things you know. Maybe, maybe I don't know, may, maybe as you make more and more films, you realise this earlier on, like you realise in the script, no, you're not going to need to shoot that. But I think often those decisions are made in the edit, like you only really figure out the pacing after everything's been shot, is my guess. Right. Now, I feel like, I mean, there's so many great performances in this, but to me, Scoot McNary carries so much, mm. like, I, like he's he's kind of doing this actor's magic trick with this film. As the writer of the film, when you watch, when you watch his performance, do you get the same feeling, the same impact? Did he, like... I'm just curious what you thought oh, of it. I mean, I think he's he's brilliant and everyone else is brilliant. Uh, like, it's just a brilliant cast. Um, it's funny, Scoot's character was more... It's not like me and Peter... It's not like me and Peter had rules, like, I'll handle this part and you handle that part. It's just that we would send each other the drafts and they'd go back and forward like a tennis game. And actually, I've got to say, Scoot's character felt more, more Peter than me. Uh, so it's harder for me to talk about that character. That was, that felt more, more Peter than me. Um. So when those conversations are happening between uh, the John character and the Scoot McNary character, I think what was. Is that almost like conversations between Yeah, but not in, not in real life. Um, but, you know, as we sent scenes back and forward from each other, yeah, I would probably... I liked John's kind of slight sort of... Um, you know, I, I think I'm, I wrote most of John because John was wrenched so much from the darkest parts of me. Um, so that peculiar awfulness is like, you know, I think uh, that came mainly from from me, like imagining the very worst version of myself. Uh, so, yeah, I, I can't remember for sure, but I do remember there was like I was asking the questions, like how does it just firing, you know, like ruining the magic by firing all of these banal questions at, at Scoot, like, you know, how does he, how does he clean his teeth? Uh, how does, like, uh, which is a sort of slightly obnoxious, but it's like both what the, what the audience will be doing in that moment, but it's also a little magic ruining, like, you know, how does he shave? Uh, he must have a very bushy beard. Like, so, like, I think I posed all of those questions, and I think Peter, as Don, you know, finally said, and I remember it was Peter who wrote this line, uh, you're just going to have to go with it. Uh, you're just going to have to go with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember Peter writing that line and sending it back to me and me thinking, what a perfect line. And how funny that line is about, you know, because it's about John, but it's also about the audience. Like the audience of, of the movie, you're just going to mm -hmm. have to go with it. So I thought that was a really inspired line. One of my favourite scenes in the film is the one where the Scoot character plays his song. Yeah. For yeah. John is like, yeah, it sucks. He's like, well, I think they're both very good. <laughs> I think both our songs sound excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope you noticed, by the way, that when you listened to Scoot's love song, did you notice what it was about? 
Uh, I, I, I think this was written, I think it was Stephen Remnick who, who came up with this, Stephen Remnick uh, who came up with this, because um, I don't think it was in the script. Um, I think I think we just wrote in the script that, you know, John plays his song and, Scoot, you know, Don says, yeah, yeah, I know what it's like to write a song and it comes out shit. And John says, what do you mean? And then Don says, you know, listen to this. I wrote this. And I think we just wrote, he plays this, you know, beautiful song. And uh, and then he finishes and says, yeah, see, they're both shit. And that was like just another little slap for John. Uh, <laughs> and mm-hmm. then John's so far down the kind of creative uh, totem pole. Um, but yeah, so so we. So what is it about? It, well, it's all about you know, it's a, it's all about it's called be still, and it's all about the stillness in the air. Um, I can't remember the lyrics. Maybe you could cut it in. Um, it's about him fucking mannequins. Oh, because they have. Oh, because they have to lie. They have to lie yes. completely still. Oh. That's that's uh, yeah, that's right. And that, and that was that was Stephen, or um, or possibly Stephen and Lenny. I don't know because that was after we finished, you know, our work. Did you see uh, the film The Ladies um, uh, Death of a Ladies Man? <laughs> no, I don't think I did. It's uh-huh. with Ga- it's with Gabriel Byrne and Stephen did the okay. music for it, and it's all based upon the music of Leonard oh. Cohen. And similarly to uh, to Frank, it's one where. If you handled it even the slightest bit mm. wrong, it would break the whole thing. But when you don't, it just the whole film just uh, yeah. It he has become one of my favorite film composers, and I can't wait to see. I'm, I'm going to be following him for the rest of his career because yeah. I mean, just like you with with this and Okja, and we'll be getting to Okja in a second. Both films and both of these films with Steven Rennicks, they both have the, this quality of something that I can't quite put my finger on other than to say it's doing something that most people get wrong and getting mm. it right. Yeah, yeah. In a complete way where like one false note in a symphony breaks the symphony and there isn't. It's, it's amazing. Um, I, I remember really clearly the moment when Lenny said uh, that he... He he wanted to, to you know change the whole idea for the music and just work with with Stephen uh, and I and I remember we all thought you know great you know make that that does sound like a more sensible idea and less less stressful uh, um, and he did write I think you asked this earlier he did write I think a lot of the music well obviously much of the music all of the music uh, before the film shot. So there was no worries about, you know, being on set with with no music having arrived, uh, and yeah, he did a, he did just an incredible job. And I think I got it. I I didn't quite get to this, but and maybe you know or maybe you don't. I would imagine that the first thing you do is you get these people who are in the band together and you start them rehearsing as a band. Uh, yeah, I like that. That's part of the. Yeah, pro- I, the I think they did that for quite a long time. I'm sure they did, but but I wasn't around for that at all. That must have uh, been so much fun. Yeah, I mean, it must have been. Um, yeah, but no, that I was, I was, you know, once the screenplay's done, our, our work is done, and and so yeah. 
it must have been it must have been great. But uh, I was living in New York by then, anyway. So I, I want to shift to Okja in a second, but before I do, there's in the you've sort of alluded to this, and certainly my co-host Brian really saw the John character as a real apologetic predator type villain. Yeah, I, I have a lot. I think I have more sympathy for the character than he does, just because maybe because I've been in more bands and I know it's a little bit more complex. But I'm curious, do you, how do you, in the end, do you think of John as a villain, uh, you know, a, like how, in the end, how do you resonate with the idea of the role he plays in the band? I think he's a, he's a, he's a very human villain. Um, he, who, who learns his lesson and makes amends in the end uh and has i love the fact that i love the that that I, I think the penultimate shot of the film is the empty space where john had been sitting yeah yeah perfect shot and um yeah he's a sort of um he he's a he's he can't help it but he's just quite mediocre mm-hmm. um i remember writing i think you mentioned this in the podcast and i was so i was i, I smiled because I, I i remember being really happy with this line of dialogue when clara's just screaming at john in the hot tub and she's like yelling insults and i and i wanted to make the insults they both yell at each other just just horribly accurate and, and I remember her yelling at him, mediocre child, because <laughs> that's kind of what John is. Um, and he, he can't, and, and he ruins everything, not, he doesn't even, not consciously, he, he ruins everything unconsciously. He doesn't know he's doing it. It's not his fault, but he, but he is doing it. It's a little bit, it's funny, you know, Lenny went on to direct The Little Stranger, and Donald's in The Little Stranger, playing a character who goes through a similar trajectory. Um, he's somebody who ruins everything, not consciously, but just through their mediocrity. <laughs> but, 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 you know, very human, like it's a very human... Yes. It's a very human thing. It's, that makes it sound like we're, that we don't like him. Like, I think what's, what's really... I think one thing that's really nice about the film is that, you know, John's failings are just so human. They're all of us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you're with someone whose light burns brighter than you and, and and sometimes that will eat you up and then you make mistakes. Like everything John does, all the mistakes he makes, he does ruin everything, but but not on purpose. Yeah. I mean, he gives up his nest egg to the band. Like he's so sincere. Yeah, he gave them his nest egg. I think there was a few more times. I think a couple of lines got cut where John John goes on quite a lot, <laughs> like as he gets more and more resentful. Goes on quite a lot about I gave him my nest egg. <laughs> I love the repetition of the words nest. For some reason, the repetition of the words nest egg just made me laugh. Now, when you get into repeating that term over and over again, are you thinking about Lost in America and Albert Brooks's great monologue about the nest egg to Julie Haggerty? Or is no. That- no, I've seen that film and I love it, and I always remember just the horror of the casino scene. But but no, I don't, I don't, I don't remember that. that oh, it's just great. At all. He's like, you can't say nest egg 
You can say birds live in a round stick and we eat things over easy with toast. <laughs> right. It's one of my favorite lines. Anyway, yes. Uh, How funny. Okay, well, uh, Frank, great film. Bravo. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that you... I always would like to hear when a writer is happy with the the result of the filmmaking process that happens to their screenplay. Oh, oh yeah, I'd, I'd love it. It's funny, it's not what I imagined. Like Peter says, Peter, Peter Strawn, my co-writer on the film, has said like in speeches he's given and stuff that yeah, a screenplay is like a, it's like an imagined movie. You're, you're, you're imagining. I just banged the microphone a couple of times. I apologize if people listening to us just heard some thudding, some thudding sounds. Um, yeah, like when you write a screenplay, you're kind of half, you're just imagining a film. It's a film that only exists in your imagination. And then it's, then it's the director's, you know, incredibly hard job. I just don't know how they do it to, to, to realize it. Um, and I think um, when we were writing the film, I don't know, maybe I, I, what was in my mind's eye was something more along the lines of with Nail and I. Um, so maybe a little bit more madcap. And Lenny bought a, a, a kind of Scandinavian comedy aesthetic to it, which just made it so, so interesting. Like, it's something we didn't anticipate, but it's, but it's wonderful. And... And, and I think makes the film better than my imaginary version of the film. Well, and I can say I, I, I hadn't made, drawn the connection, but as soon as you said With Nail and I, that's a film that has that same quality of like, man, one, one false note in this thing and it all falls apart, but everything's firing. So, yeah, that's, that, that totally yeah. makes sense. I mean, the film doesn't feel... You don't watch it and think, oh, well, this reminds me of With Nail and I, but I can feel that in the DNA of it. Yeah, I mean, it probably would have felt a lot more like With Nail and I if somebody other than Lenny had directed it. But, and I think what he brought to it, this complete, this, this unexpected uh, aesthetic, he really liked films like uh, Leningrad Cowboys Go America. Do, do you know that film? Yeah, that's the, um, um, what's his name? The, the director. I've forgotten his name. Yes. Scandinavian director. Yeah, my, I, I uh, my co-host, Brian, is a huge fan of that director. So let me just get it right because he'll listen to this and be bad. He actually took me to that, uh, to, to see a filming of, I mean, to see a screening of that particular film when we first got to know each other. And it's Aki Kurismaki. Yes. And he's a huge... That's right. Yeah. Brian's a huge fan, fan of Aki Kurismaki and... I wouldn't know that film to be able to get your reference if he hadn't been around for that. So great to have film okay. friends. Well, that was, I think Lenny was was in, inspired by his films and, and sort of brought a similar aesthetic to Frank. I know what they're calling me, those ALF fuckers. They're calling me a psychopath. You're not a psychopath. They're the psychopaths, right, Miss Miranda? They're narcissists. Do narcissists wear balaclavas? Ugh, crazy radicals have been calling us psychopaths since the 60s. You're a psychopath. Your sister was a psychopath. Your father was a psychopath. Well, Daddy was a psychopath, Frank. I mean, that's hardly an unfair slur. 
What did you do in the war, Daddy? You manufactured the napalm that made everybody's skin fall off. <laughs> and this is a man who called his child an idiot loser. Well, in fairness to your father, when he called you an idiot loser, you had just signed up for a two-year course in California called Unleash Your Calling. At a highly respected institute for the advancement of human potential, where many a forward-looking CEO go. And you know what I was doing while I was at the institute? I was visualizing new and better ways of doing business. While my sister was CEO, what was the name of that lake? Moose Lake. Moose Lake. While my sister was CEO, dumping so much toxic waste into Moose Lake that it exploded, the only lake ever to explode. Well done, Nancy. I was visualizing ways of turning the most hated agrochemical company in the world into the most likable miracle pig-rearing company. And it's working. It's working. It was working until last night, until six hours ago. The synthesis of old Mirando and new Mirando was impeccable. I took nature and science and I synthesized. And everyone loved it. You remember what the New York Times said about our super pigs? Intriguing, right? Slate. Lucy Mirando is pulling off the impossible. She is making us fall in love with a creature that we are already looking forward to eating. I mean, these are journalists who never write about pigs. They never write about pigs. They wrote about our pigs. Ten years in planning on the cusp of a product launch that will feed millions. And what happens? We get tangled up in this terrorism thing and somehow we end up the being the ones who look bad. Uh, we don't look too bad. We don't? Open that thing. Let's, let's move on to Okja, shall we? Sure. So Okja's origins, very, very different from, from the Frank film. Right. Oh, it, it couldn't be more different. Uh, it Oakshire is, is, you know, really Bong Joon Ho's film, and I was I was you know in service to him. Like Frank emerged from a combination of you know me and Peter really, and then Lenny came along and you know radically you know wanted some radical changes and stuff. So it's you know there's a lot of Lenny in there too, um, but Oakshire was like you know it's Bong, it's director Bong's film and he he was a fan of frank um and he wanted an english writer to work on some of the english characters uh, and 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 he had done that before with snowpiercer he worked with the writer of um before the devil knows you're dead and so he did a similar thing with Oakja with with me so um yeah so i was very i was like in service to him so at what point in the project did you come into it? Uh, he'd written a, a big, sprawling first draft, um, which had been sort of roughly translated into English. Um, and really the whole arc of the, of the narrative was, was there in that first draft. Uh, I mean, things, certain things changed over time, but, um, but it was all there. But... Um, but a lot of the English the English speaking characters hadn't been drawn, so the ALF, the animal the animal rights people, hadn't been drawn at all. They were just, you know, kind of character A, character B, character C. So he was asking me to to fill in 
those characters give them personalities. That I mean, he had given them personalities, but he was like, you know, think of that stuff as a blank canvas. Um, and the same for Tilda's characters and, and Jake's character. Um, yeah, so, when, so whenever there's an English-speaking character in the film, you know, I would have worked on those scenes. Getting a big picture view of it, are you... What's your relationship to the meat industry and vegetarianism and all, like all of the thing when you talk about this film with people and it's sort of my I sort of have a a negative reaction to this. Whenever I talk to people about this film, they're like, "Oh, I can't see it. I don't want to feel this terrible feelings. Oh, I don't I I don't want to give up eating meat." And it seems so yeah. strange because there's so many movies that are so full of violence. And you're like, oh, I, you know, I don't want to see this movie because I don't want to see people get killed. Oh, I'll go. I'll, I'm fine seeing an airplane crash and everyone die in it, but I don't want to see. I have to think about how eating bacon might be bad. Right. How do you uh, relate to that? Well, I happened to be a vegetarian. Uh, I'd become a vegetarian a few years earlier. Uh, director Bong and the producer Duho. Um, I think became vegetarians after visiting a slaughterhouse in the development of the film. It's really hard to not become a vegetarian after you've been to a slaughterhouse. This, I've been to a slaughterhouse mm-hmm. years ago and the smell stays with you for weeks afterwards. You, you, the smell just seeps into your brain. The smell uh, of like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to bring up terrible memories for you, but can you, well, on that occasion, the smell of lots of dead turkeys. This was a turkey slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. Just the smell, just, oh, God. I mean, it's like the sort of treacly, pervasive, clinging smell of death. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and so Director Bog had been to a slaughterhouse, you know, in preparation uh, for writing Oak Joe, and I think he became vegetarian for a while. But as he said, like, career is such a meat country i mean seoul is it's all about korean barbecues and stuff so it's very hard to remain a vegetarian when when you live in korea uh it's funny because in the very beginning of the film it's i feel like one of the wonderful little there's so many wonderful little subtle notes in this film but one of them when she's i mean she's out using oksha to capture fish that she's going to eat it's not a vegetarian film Mm. It is yeah. a, it's opposed to, it's really a more of an anti-capitalist meat industry, the imbalance and the sort of, the lack of connection between us and our food. Uh, yeah, yeah. I know that Director Bong didn't want it to be, you know, an, anti, an anti-meat eating film. That wasn't his point at all. Um, and I guess my contribution to that was, you know, given that the ALF were, sort of blank canvases, I decided like, I I didn't want to make them these beatific heroes. I wanted them to be flawed. And so one of them clearly has an anxiety disorder where he's so scrupulous and so ethical, he's just not eating anything anymore. Uh, which I love he's that. No good on. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, so taking sort of Bong's idea forward that this is, isn't just a an animal rights film, you know, it was, it, we could make the animal rights activists kind of, you know, heroic and buffoonish at the same time. I'd like 
you know, a mixture of good and bad and silly and heroic. I, I love them. Everyone I've talked to with the, about the film really has a, a strong feeling for the ALF when they arrive there. I feel like they're yeah. the closest in life experience to most of the people who might watch the film. I feel like they're the most relatable in their flaws and, in, and also in their you know, desire to be the good guys. Right, yeah. And he cast them so brilliantly. Um, I mean, obviously, Paul Dano, but also, you know, these um, Devin Bostick and Lily Collins. These are, you know, Lily, they're so popular on, I mean, Lily Collins is now a big star, but, you know, at the time they were so popular on social media. And and so he was casting them sort of from that, you know, some of them, you know, who really had a connection to that world. Uh I just love yeah. that opening scene and I can, it's funny, I didn't hear it. But then again, when I listen to all of your, your books on tape and everything, I start to hear your voice in it. And when they're, when mm. they're just saying, buckle, buckle, <laughs> <laughs> I just think yeah. that's the, I, I, I don't know. I, of all of the memorable things from the movie, that moment of the <laughs> polite raid is, <laughs> It just oh, I know. feels so yeah, good. It, right. Um, I, my feeling, I suppose, is that, you know, the reason my director Bog offered me the job is because he, he really liked Frank. And I think he was probably thinking of the ALF, like when he hired me, like, mm. here's the opportunity to give them a sort of similar vibe to the band in Frank. Uh, I would I, I, never have put that together, but that's perfect. Yeah, that's my guess. Um, that? Yeah. That's yeah. great. That's great. Um, the other part that really jumped out, again, not while I was watching it, but after I had listened to the psychopath test, is Giancarlo Esposito. Well, all the talk of psychopaths in this film. And that is, you yeah. know, that's your territory in a certain way. Yeah, everybody accusing everybody else of being psychopaths. I like that. that it, I just really noticed that it's become such a term of abuse. You know, social media has these um, terms of abuse that come and go. Um, I've noticed these days everybody calls each other pedophiles, uh, which is, you know, especially unpleasant, I think, mm -hmm. as a term of abuse on Twitter. Um, but another more fun term, <laughs> term of abuse that people would throw at each other is psychopath or narcissist. Like we want to demonize our enemies. Uh, and, a, and a good way of doing that is bestowing upon them a sort of demonic uh, mental health label. Uh, sometimes it's true, I should say, but also sometimes we use mental health labels as weapons. And yeah, I, I look at that in the psychopath test. And yeah, that's that bled into the, the upper echelons of, of the Miranda Corporation in Oakja. That great line where uh, Gian Giancarlo Esposito says psychopaths multiple times, you're a psychopath, mm. I'm a psychopath, your father <laughs> was a psychopath. Just listening right. to him, I don't know, masticate that word, it was, I, yeah. I, I, I imagined, again, after listening to the psychopath test, that that must have brought a little bit of a smile to your face. Oh, yeah, most certainly. I mean, it's always very weird. I mean, I say a smile, but, you know, you, you worry um, all the time. So, because you want everything to go well and you want it to all be good. And um, it's funny, I was having lots of fun talking about writing Frank earlier. <clears throat> and it reminded me of something. 
Like I went, when I went through the whole Minister Goats process and Frank from first coming up with the idea to you know, going to the premiere and doing publicity around the release of the film, you you wonder, when I first got involved, I remember thinking to myself, like, I wonder what the kind of, what the magical moment is when it all comes together, when you're thinking, oh, my, like, wow, look at where I am. Like, this is just perfect. And it's not, it's not when you visit the set, you know, you think that's going to be so exciting. Uh, but it's not, it's hard, you know, everyone's just working very hard. It's like a construction site. So that's not the moment. And it's not, when you see the first rough cut, because the first rough cut is, you know, it's always got problems. There's always like room for improvement. And then you watch each rough cut. Oh, that's it. This is what happened with Frank. Not not Oakja, but with Frank, I got to um, see each rough cut and give notes. Uh, so it gets better and better with each cut. So again, it's like a process as opposed to a magical moment. So then you wonder, oh, well, maybe it's like at the premiere, like that sounds so exciting, going to go to a premiere. Um, But that's stressful because it's the first time anybody's going to see the film, so you're Mm -hmm. just sitting there worried. Uh, So everything that you thought, you know, that you could have daydreamed as a child would be magical isn't magical it's like anxiety inducing uh, and then you think well you know what there was a magic moment and the magic moment was right at the beginning when we were just writing the script and just sending scenes between us and peter would just write a wonderful line and and it would get sent back to me and you know that that's the magical moment yeah i think i, I mean i that's a hard thing to communicate to people who aren't uh sort of tied to some sort of creative endeavor. But that's always the case. Like the writing of the song is more, yeah. and or maybe just the record, the initial recording of a song is always so much more fun than everything that comes after until maybe you get farther, far enough away from it that you can just to sort of discover it. Like, oh, wow, this is something that a different version of me did 10 years ago. It's actually pretty good. I like this. Right. I can listen to it without thinking of the hours and hours of revisions and the things that when you're yeah. so close to it, you're like oh, you can't stop thinking about the one thing that wasn't right. So, yeah, yeah. I hear you. It's, it's also about figuring out how a person wants to live their life. Like um, if you're sitting at home writing and you're thinking, oh, am I missing out on all of these amazing things? you know, while I'm just sitting here in a room on my own. And then you experience the amazing things and you realise, actually, I prefer sitting at home on my own writing. <laughs> so that gives you a sense of satisfaction, like like any FOMO you had evaporates. Mm-hmm. And it makes it so uh, much it makes... easier to deal with the last two years, if that's how you're, if that's how you're uh, designed. Yeah, uh, yeah, no question. No question. I, I count myself very lucky as a introvert you know we i think we handled i mean, I, I think you know uh, on a well i it's i don't know this isn't you, this isn't something that you can say in generalizations but you know i handled it fine yeah for those reasons i think if you're used i don't know about introverts but i think if you are someone who can happily work in your room on something creative and go and just like be immersed in that then you're a lucky person you know, that's a that's a great yeah. I think that's just a great skill to have, whether or not there's a pandemic going on. Just that idea that I can entertain myself. 
and yeah. come out of this but room with something that might a, entertain you. Sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah. But also it's like a good feeling. Like if you can get to a place in your life where you think, um, you know, the way I'm living my life is probably the best. Like I'm not, there isn't another version of my life where things would be better. It's quite a good, you know, it's a good aim. It's good to aim for that. You know, where you get to a place in your life where you think, you know, this is, this is, this is as best as I could do. Well, I'll tell you, um, you know, I, I want to keep talking about the films, but my experience of immersing myself in, in three of your written works or two of your written works and one of your podcasts, which I assume you wrote, mm -hmm. is... One, first of a little bit of a deja vu, because I realize how much I've encountered your, your work in the past without uh. being aware it was yours. And also one, and I mean this very sincerely, I don't mean this as a compliment, I just mean it as my experience, was listening to it and feeling so much of a kinship with the things you choose to focus on and the way you choose to focus on it. It was like my experience after listening to all of it was like, this guy is one of the voices of my generation in a way that is that I'm really, really glad to have encountered. The film stuff feels like gravy to it or like icing on the cake. Like clearly you put so much work into your writing, but it's, mm. uh, there's a, uh, I don't know, I, people may have sometimes called you a gonzo journalist, but I think that uh, that implies a certain amount of sensationalism and I just feel like yeah, the sincerity, yeah, uh, but yeah. you are immersing yourself in these issues in a way that makes, makes it feel like the way we live rather than reading about a topic. And yeah, I just think that's, that, that probably is what makes you a, a, a good screenwriter because you're able to embody, like feel things in your being and then express them through writing. Well, thank you. Uh, that's really kind um I, th I i think the screenwriting's always been like harder for me i i think i've like i really know how to do how to tell a non-fiction narrative story now like when all the material is there in front of me i just know how to shape it in the best way um and but screenwriting is much more like like in a forest in the dark hoping <laughs> hoping you get there uh, because I think it's it's just such a different. It, you, it feels like it should be two similar things. Like if you've got a mastery, you know, if you can do narrative, then. But 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 screenplay it's about it's a, you have to like it's got so many different skills that I think other people do so much more naturally than I do. Like for me, it's much harder work. So just imagining things, just making things up from you know that's that's a skill. Mm -hmm. um, with 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 nonfiction, you don't have to make anything up. It's all just happening in front of you. Uh, and also, what you just alluded to then, and, and and earlier on too, about just the alchemy, about just how an emotion, how how you can make people feel things. Um, doing that through the process of not just writing, but also acting and cinematography, and then and that's all coming together on a film set, which is such a you know, stressful place where there's like a hundred people and you can't slow down. Uh, and then somehow through all of that process and the editing process, an alchemy comes. And that's all the work of, you know, a director and an editor and, an act and actors. And that's all stuff that, 
I, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm in awe of and don't know how it's done. It's only the writing part of it that, you know, I think I can do. But with screenwriting, the writing part of it's such a, you know, it's just a part of it. Well, yeah, that's why, I mean, whoever's working with you and making sure that your scripts are ending up with directors like Lenny Abramson or Bong Joon-ho or, you know, there's something, you know, if you're working with great people, then that's where, you know, a band comes together or a creative team comes together. So certainly... Well, I learned a lot from Peter Strawn, my co-writer on Frank. Peter's very accomplished. He wrote... Uh, he got nominated for an Oscar uh, for Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and he's done more films. He's written more films for Thomas Alfredson. I think he's doing a whole series with Thomas Alfredson now. And he did Wolf Hall, like, which is a great BBC costume drama. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, he, so he's really... Anyway, so I learned a lot from him, a lot. When, you, when you're with good people, collaboration can be the most fun thing in the world. Um. Yeah, he bought skills that I didn't have, and it was it was a great collaboration. You had mentioned a film that you wanted to discuss that you think the world is wrong about. Before we switch to that, is there anything mm. that we left on the table you feel like is important that people should know about Okja as I, as we hope the world is discovering it more and more? Well, I think um, I think the world knows Okja pretty well. I, I think it had a. Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't know for certain that Netflix never, you know, released their figures, so it's really hard to tell how well something does on Netflix. They release their figures once in a while, like they've done with Squid Game, but most often they don't. Um, but I think Okja did great when it was first released on Netflix, like it did really well, and then it dipped, and then when Parasite came out, Okja got a great big new lease of life on Netflix. So... I think a lot of people have seen it, I think. Well, that's good. I mean, I'm I, in part because Netflix doesn't announce these things and in part because I missed it when it came out. I told it like until uh, our guest co-host Jen Brown recommended it. I'd never even heard of the film. So that's just my right. own blind oh. spot. Sure. No, I mean, I, I'm sure you're not the only one to have that blind spot. Like, I'm not saying it's ubiquitous and you're some kind of freak. Um, but I do. But I've never thought that Oakshoot had been un, has been underwatched. Like, that's never crossed my mind. Well, that's good. I mean, you're the one. I mean, if you're at the center of it, you're much going to be much more aware of the impact. So that makes me happy. So you're clearly a fan of films with one name titles because we've got Frank, we've got Okja and when I asked you to, if you wanted to talk about a film you think the world is wrong about you mentioned Pride from 2014 You can have five minutes Are you sure about this? Dead sure Yeah, but for die. Oh, I'm alright, lad Trust me, Di, if you can handle this it's going to make a huge difference What's he going to do? Take his clothes off? I'm just going to say thank you Well... Don't blame me if you get bottled. Right! Shut up, you fuckers! Thank you, thank you. Uh, right, listen, some of you know me. My name is Mark Ashton. Coming! <laughs> I'm going to invite somebody onto the stage now who wants to talk to you. And I want you to listen to him. He comes from the Delice Valley in South Wales. And he, um... Well, he's a striking minor, and he has something he wants to say to you. Uh, 
I've had a, I've had a lot of new experiences during the strike. Speaking in public, standing on a picket line, and now I'm in a, a gay bar. Well, if you don't like it, you can go home. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I do like it. <laughs> Beer's a bit expensive, mine. <laughs> but really, there's only one difference between this and a bar in South Wales. The women. They're a lot more feminine in here. <laughs> what I'd really like to say to you tonight is thank you. If you're one of the people that's put money in these buckets, if you've supported LGSM, then thank you. Because what you've given us is more than money, it's friendship. When you're in a battle, against an enemy so much bigger, so much stronger than you, but to find out you had a friend you never knew existed, well, that's the best feeling in the world. So thank you. Uh, do you want to tell us how you think the world is wrong about pride? Well, I just remember I saw it. I saw it twice. It came out the same year as Frank, so we were kind of in in competition uh, at the at the sort of British and Irish Film Awards. We were like nominated against each other the whole time. Um, so I saw it uh, then and just loved it. And then when it came to America, I, I saw it in New York at the uh, at Lincoln Center at the big AMC there or the Lowe's. And the place was half full. This was like opening night and the place was half full. And I think it lasted like a week, you know. And But the audience there were... every, every Pretty much everyone in the audience was in tears at mm-hmm. the end of the film. People were just sobbing. And I don't know why that film didn't, didn't catch on. Um, it's, you know, it's got... F, it's... it's you, I don't know, a world where Billy Elliot is is an international hit and Pride is barely known is a world I don't quite understand because I just think those two films have are equally emotionally wrenching and just kind of beautiful. Although I should say that I I I was kind of adjacent to everything that happened in that film in Pride, so maybe I'm especially moved by it because I because my life was sort of adjacent to it. Would you mind just uh, briefly encapsulating the the plot in you know d- broad strokes? Sure. Okay, so it's London in 1983 or, or four. I can't quite remember. Um, I moved to London in '85, so it was like a year or two before I moved to London. Um, and it's uh, a, a, a lesbian and gay group. Uh, who were just sort of living the socialist Camden Town, King's Cross, North London life for anybody who gets any of those references listening to this. Uh, the kind of early 80s world of like the communards and Billy Bragg and I guess the Smiths were just coming into it. Uh, and they were a lesbian and gay group. And at the same time, it, the miners' strike is happening, which was this, you know, huge... Um, moment in in uh 
Thatcher was the Prime Minister and she was closing down the mines as being unprofitable. But so many communities, especially in the north of England and in Wales, in South Wales, um, were mining communities. And if you took the mines away, uh, then the community would, would, would die. Uh, so... Um, uh, so the lesbian and gay group decide to decide that, like in an early example of intersectionality, uh, decide that they need to raise money for the miners. So they start raising money for the miners, but none of the miners uh, want their money because they're all homophobes. So then the lesbian gay group can't find uh, a mining community who'll accept the money until they finally do. They find a Welsh mining community and it just becomes about their relationships between the two groups as they sort of slowly get to know each other. And it's all happening just before AIDS uh, is mm -hmm. just before AIDS came to London. Um, and so that's hanging as a as a sort of shadow over the whole thing. It's just such a sort of beautiful kind of moving film about about, uh, you know, um, well, about everything that I just described. Well, I, yeah, I, I was, I. This is another film I'd never heard of. When I looked at mm -hmm. the cast, I just, I didn't wait a second. I, I had to see this film. I, everyone who's in it is an actor who I just love. Mm -hmm. Some who I've loved a long time. Some like uh, George McKay, who I'm just excited about everything he does. And so I watched it and. Yeah, it's the the feeling of a, a film about solidarity in the way that it is. Mm. It's so it's so right now we're in such a fractious time where every victimized group seems like at odds with every victimized group. Right. In a way that's fomented by social media and all this stuff. And there was yeah. just a, such a powerful... Everyone's retreated to their corners. Yeah, like it's the battle of who's the most oppressed which ultimately doesn't serve anyone and that this film and its message is so much about the about solidarity You're yeah right. that was the word i was reaching for when i when i stopped talking uh, it's about solidarity that one that amazing billy bragg song that they oh. play at the end there is power in our union mm -hmm. uh, it's yeah it's a film that makes solidarity emotion very emotional yeah yeah and it's so smart, and it's it it does. One of the things I love about the film is how it subverts our expectations of what a film like this is going to be. And one of the the ways that it really struck me was: so you have the the conservative woman and her two sons, and the whole time you're watching it, you're girding for like. They're going to beat up one of these in this town. One of these people, these activists is going to get beaten up by these guys. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. The film sets you mm. on that path. And when they bust into that the gay, hall. Because the lesbian and gay group go to this, uh, you know, working class South Wales mining town. And there's a lot of tension, you know, to give them money. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of tensions with, you know, with them going there. Anyway. Right. And on. then when the two kids bust into the to the hall to and you think it's going to be this violent thing. And the the sort of like, I don't know, weak-willed husband of one of the female activists who's working with the gay group who we think is sort of on the fence, 
he just steps up and throws them out like you would any bullies in a bar. If they were picking on, if these those two guys busted in to beat up on some women, they would get thrown out. But that mo- right. again, that is this moment of solidarity that doesn't that the whole time you get the feeling like this isn't safe for them. It is these are brave people who are going into places where they are risking bodily harm. And we get the we get that feeling, but then the film gives us a moment instead of giving the, us the moment of a brutal beating and feeling bad about it, we get a moment of a solidarity and a and, a, and in a very visceral way. And then we still have the, a moment like that later on in the film, so it doesn't deny the reality of that experience. But I just feel like it it tweaks it in a way that makes it a film that inspires rather than depresses. Yeah, it's a film about peace. So it's a good film for, for us pacifists. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ending, we shouldn't give it away, but I think, you know, I, I think Frank turned out to have just a perfect ending. And um, I think Pride has, has a perfect ending too, but, a, you know, wrenching and devastating ending, Yeah, which we shouldn't give away. But on both occasions, I think it's really good to... I can't remember who said it, but, you know, which great director said it, but, you know, the ending's the most important part of the film because it's about the people who are going to remember when they leave. Yeah, I wanted to just dig in on a couple of the performances that really stuck out. Now, mm-hmm. I'm probably going to pronounce this name wrong too. Bill Nye? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Okay, so he, I, I, he's one of those actors who... I probably came late to the party, but in the last 10 years, he's become someone who I'm like, anytime he's in something, I want to see it. And there is mm. a subtle moment. Like, I, I'm an actor. I, 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 I started in, in my life as a, as a young actor. And so I, I'm always looking for sort of perfect acting moments. Like, the, to me, the, the, the greatest example or the, uh, the first example that I witnessed was there's a scene in Streetcar named Desire where Marlon Brando is is berating Vivian Lee, Vivian Lee, and she's uh, he's waving around her boas, and a little f- piece of lint falls off this boa, and in the middle of this ranting, he just reaches out with his finger and grabs that little piece of lint, and you're like, that is a totally natural, perfect moment. You can't, you couldn't, mm. he couldn't have thought of that. He had to totally be in the moment, and the camera just kept, captures it. And there's this yeah. one moment with Bill Nye sitting on the this bench with the it's like the first time when he really comes out of his shell and he just has this it's like this little moment of laughter and recognition and understanding that is it's like that Brando moment it's like it's a you can't manufacture this moment and except, and it's almost more impressive because he's doing so much of it with silence mm. Ugh. God, he, yeah, he's, so, he's yeah, incredible. Um, that and then I also, uh, he's definitely taken off since then. But Andrew Scott's performance in it, yeah, it, oh, so rich. And actually, I got to say, as someone who's spent a lot of time listening to your voice, I feel like you have similar voices. You know, I think that's true. I wonder whether I, I can't remember whether he's actually, I can't remember whether he's actually Welsh or not. Um, but I don't think my accent's particularly Welsh anyway, even though I grew up in Wales. I grew up in Cardiff, which was, you know, the nearest 
big city to 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 those mining towns uh, that are in the film. I guess Cardiff and Swansea are the are the two big big cities. I remember laughing so much. This is a this is a joke that I think would mean something to such a tiny number of people. But at one point, um, they're talking about how somebody's so fancy she has. Uh, Laura Ashley wallpaper, and that was such a kind of Proustian trigger of you know memories about being lower middle class in Cardiff, and that's what we all aspired to Laura Ashley wallpaper. <laughs> so it's got beautiful little little details like that, which you know won't mean much to many people, but at least I can testify that they're very well observed. It's got a slightly, it's got a bit of a kind of homemade aesthetic to it, a, a bit like a, a well, I mean, it, it, what it is, which is a low-budget British film, and and I wonder whether that sort of acted against it a little bit in America too. It's that's that's a very sort of British aesthetic. And by the way, I think the film did a lot better in Britain than it did in America. I think it did very well in Britain. It, it just just not in America. Uh, I just wonder whether some of the aesthetics uh, cross cross over as well as. You know, I, one would hope. Well, it's it's you know it's the the two, the two groups that it's focusing on, are not usually brought together, and so hmm. I feel like if I saw a film called if I just saw just saw Pride, I would think oh well this is a gay film or a queer film and maybe I'm in the mood for that and maybe maybe I you know, whoever I am maybe I hmm. feel alienated by that maybe I feel like oh I know what this is going to be. And it's not yeah. for me, and I feel like that's a that's there's something there might have been some mistake in how it was marketed because it makes sense to lean into that you wouldn't want to not lean into that but I feel like the labor side of it which is also something that people have a hard time writing about in mainstream media I feel like if that had been played up more I think it would be more universally I don't know intriguing to people. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think um, it was marketing it as, you know, a sort of, I don't know, what did it say to you? Just very colourful. The marketing was very colourful. They were all there, a big group picture of everybody kind of goofing to the camera. And I don't know, maybe that that wasn't. Well, I just feel the like the, the sort of the time capsule nature of it, the revolutionary nature of it, the solidarity, the, you know, the. Like maybe there should have yeah. it should like a a, a a poster with, you know, a with a cop beating up a you know, a different protesters mm. at different protesters something that that speaks to that sense of we want to be to have solidarity and there is you know. That's although not you know what this film came out in although this film came out in twenty fourteen and. I think that was just slightly before, like, the new activism. I, I think the new activism was, like, it was, like, beginning to grow in, like, 2013, 2014. But it was, I don't know, it was more like 2015, 2016. It really yeah, started right. to grow. So maybe the marketers wouldn't have thought of it that way. I think that it was slightly before before that time. Um, but for me, so I, I uh, moved to London in 1985 and went to all of those clubs and went to the same gigs that they would have gone to, like, you know, Rock Against Racism and the same bands. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, I'll have seen Billy Bragg at some socialist workers' event in 
Camden Town at that time. So, like, I knew though I knew all of those people. So that was so. So I think the film was especially moving for that because that was like such a. Uh, just before I met Frank, you know, that's kind of what I was doing with my life was hanging around, you know, in, in that kind of world. Um, so I think the film was especially moving because of, you know, I was adjacent to it. It's funny, as you get older, you realise that moments from your past um, become history. And I, and I think that was, uh, that's become that history. Uh, yeah, sort of socialism in London in the early 80s. And like what you said about the shadow of AIDS hanging over it. I mean, that I'm a, just a, a tick younger than you because I would have uh-huh. I would have been uh, a junior a senior in high school in 85. Um, and mm-hmm. I moved to L.A. in 86 to have my own adventures with uh, my generation. Right. And so but that feeling of watching it and knowing that something's coming. Yeah, it does. It does yeah. deeply inform the film. And again, it's one of those things that it handles so, I don't want to say subtly because it's not, but with a, with a light touch, it yeah. doesn't hammer that home, but it just, it, you can just feel it creeping towards this film towards you know yeah the, the and, and the dis yeah and again without giving in too much or try not to give anything away just the dissonance between you know joy mm-hmm. and horror uh is just so emotionally powerful towards the end of the film but i'm glad we're focusing on it because i do feel like it has something it's exactly the kind of film that we should be covering on the world is wrong because it is it, it has something to say to us now as a film maybe even more than it did then just that because that's what we need so much is a sense of a shared experience of wanting something better and that that better thing is working together to create that better thing sort of like you were saying about the creative process the best part is being in that room writing and the best part is shaking another person's hand and saying let's do this well, I wouldn't go that far. I think, I think figuratively shaking somebody's hand. I rather enjoy writing remotely with my writing partner. So I'm sitting in a room on my mm-hmm. own, and Peter's sitting in a room on his own, and we email each other. But I think, I, I, so I think an email saying "I love that line" is my version of a of mm-hmm. a handshake. <laughs> yeah, but otherwise, I agree with you. I was just being making the. <laughs> The physical contact point. Yes, yes. Right now, physical contact. A little bit. But I guess because it's such a metaphor in the film, like when people, when they take, when they just, I don't know, there's something about that image well, John becomes the outsider, you know, the, the, but the band was perfect before John came along and John came along and not only, you know, did he ruin everything with his presence, he ruined everything by bringing the outside world into it by, you know, tweeting and mm-hmm. blogging about the band and putting little clips on YouTube. So, you know, their, their, their sanctity was smashed by the outside world. Right. Um, now, I have one last question for you. And that, and because okay. I've been saving this because I, the one of, uh, I didn't get to read, I didn't get to, and I, I want to get to your book. Uh, is it The Secret Rulers of the World? 
or is it the, the podcast? Oh, them. Uh, no, the, the book's called Them, Adventures with Extremists. Got uh, it. But, the, but, I made, but at the time, I made a TV series to go alongside it, and the TV series was called The Secret Rulers of the World. So one of the things that I, throughout my entire life, have been... Oh, not my entire life, my entire adult life, I've been trying to, nav- to navigate the cognitive dissonance of the term conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist, because okay. it always seems, it seems like an event happens and then people try and figure out what, figure out that event. And then eventually history comes to some conclusion about that. But in that process, in between an event happening and there being some sort of a historical consensus, it seems like everything that involves some sort of behind the scenes actions to make that event happen or to make that event possible is a conspiracy theory. And it always just seems like it works against the intelligence of a conversation when that term is used. Not the like the concept of questioning bogus accusations or there there's other ways to approach it. But every time I hear that, it my brain breaks a little bit. And I feel further from the truth. And let me just get to my question. So my question is, you've thought a lot about this. This is something, and I, and when I realized that you were going to be on the show, and especially today, we're, this is going to come out in January, but this is coming, we're recording this in November, and there's, there's all this, there's a new thing that came out about the lab leak theory, and I don't want to go down any particular rabbit holes, but it's just sort of, you see this dynamic of something happens, People deny that there's anything going on behind the scenes. They call anyone who questions it a, a conspiracy theorist. And then we find out that there was something going on. So how do you navigate that term? Well, I think the, okay, I think the lab leak schism between those who believe in it and those who don't is a, is a really extreme example of, of a problem that's been you know synonymous with the term conspiracy theorist you know since since whenever since the nineties or whatever, um, so everything these days is 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 the culture wars like everything gets subsumed into the culture wars, uh, everything. I mean, it, I just couldn't believe you know, when mask wearing became a culture war issue. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it's like it's it's everything, and the lab leak certainly has become part of the culture wars. Um, I, I I would argue that quite a lot of, you know like a a huge chunk of this is the fault of the fact that Trump became president and just traded off the culture wars, just just created, you know, both by his rhetoric and then the uh, response to his rhetoric uh, just, you know, made everybody hunker down and now everything's part of the culture wars. So the lab leak is a really extreme example of that because, of course, you know, since the very beginning... But you know what? I'm going to... OK, so since the very beginning, it's clear that, that the, the fact that the... Um, uh, coronavirus could have come from uh, the market, but it is a bit fucking weird that there's a coronavirus lab right next door to the market. It could have come from that too. Like I think any right-thinking person would keep their options open about that. But somehow even that got subsumed into the culture wars. So if you were a, a CNN-watching Democrat, you believe it came from the market. If you're a MAGA person, you believe it came from the lab. And 
you know, just another, just another fucking, you know, culture war battle. Uh, the term conspiracy theory has always had that to an extent. It, it's certainly a pejorative. It's become a pejorative. What it what it means is it's it, it's describing a, a kind of personality that wants to draw connections where they're quite. Possibly, and you know, a more rational-minded person would say that those connections aren't actually there. So it's so it's it's certainly true that the term conspiracy theory has become a pejorative. Yeah, it's just it's one of those things that I'm that is constantly confusing to me. And I just felt like of all the people I may have an opportunity to talk with who's thought deeply about it, um, right? I thought you. I'd just like to get your take on it. Yeah. So. Thank you for sharing. Well, that. yeah, no, I think so. I mean, there's lots of terms. When I wrote them, I remember I, I wrote a chapter about the Weaver family at Ruby Ridge, Randy Weaver. Mm-hmm. And I remember Rachel Weaver, Randy's daughter, saying to me, you know, the house was a house until the FBI surrounded it and then it became a compound. Uh, so, you know, words are used as, as you know, uh, sometimes as weapons, sometimes just they're used in biased ways. Uh, so, yeah. Um, but the difference between, you know, but there is, you know, there's a difference between the sort of person who goes out and does like real research and, and oh, you know what, I'm not going to go down that old road. Um, but um, I think that's a good answer. No, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Uh-huh. OK, well, right. is there anything you're working on that our listeners should be looking forward to? Well, if this is coming out in January, then my new thing will be out. I still feel like I shouldn't talk about it because it hasn't been officially announced yet. And I know that seems irrational that um, this show is going to come out. um, First week of January. Yeah, and my new thing starts on the 9th of November. But I still won't talk about it because I haven't, like, it hasn't been officially announced yet. So, um, but it's a new show and I've been working on it all year. And you know what? That last thing we just talked about, uh, it's kind of in that ballpark. Um, And hopefully if it does well, people listening to this will know about this show by the time, by the time this show comes out. Well, I, I hope it's okay. Because uh, at the we we will record an outro to this by the time. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening to this and being like, well, I want to know what it is, I'm going to tell you in just a second. Because <laughs> sure, by then okay. it'll be out. And I'm sorry to be so weird. No, no, it's so okay. Cool. I totally get it. I totally get it. You don't have to. I don't. We don't deserve your scoop. I know it's fine. We're not. <laughs> right. we're, give that to somebody okay. who has like a million followers. Well, I'm going to do, I'm actually going to do it with, uh, do you know, Adam Curtis, the documentary maker? One of my favorites. Um, Okay. Well, me and Adam are going to have a conversation about it. um, And that's going to be like a way that most people will, will get to hear about it. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show.
This is Kate Zazowski. And this is Caitlin Reese. And we are straight guys. Okay, no, we're not. We're actually queer women. Fooled ya. Literally no one believed we were actually straight guys. Your mom did. That doesn't even make sense. Join us as we roast straight and gay culture, answer sex and dating questions from straight folks, and make the news gay. We also roast each other. It's pretty easy. Caitlin kind of sucks. And we have a lot of funny queer special guests. So listen to Straight Guys. A podcast that's anything but on Paperhouse Network. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. So, Brian. Yeah, that was, what, a, that was great. Yeah? yeah? Yeah. Is that, you know what? He like I always say this, but that was I think this is maybe our best episode. I think uh, when I leave, <laughs> you always bring in these fascinating people, and uh, yeah, no, that what a great conversation, and it's so funny that he brought up uh, Leningrad Cowboys Go America. I remember taking you to see that. I think it was at the Northwest Film Forum up in Seattle. I mm-hmm. think that's right, and. I, I didn't pick up on that when watching Frank, but like when th- once he said that, I'm like, oh, of course, that makes so much sense that he would be referencing Aki Kurismaki. Uh, yeah, no, so that was, <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> and uh, now I can actually announce the thing that he was saying he couldn't talk about in the interview. Uh, he recently came out with a podcast called Things Fell Apart, and I'm just going to read the description here behind every seismic culture clash in American history. There are real human stories about how it all began. Acclaimed writer and podcaster, John Ronson sets off to track down those extraordinary and unexpected tales, discovering the real people at the heart of America's most vicious culture wars from sex education and gay liberation to legal abortion and beyond. Hear about how these clashes started from the people who were on the front lines and join John as he seeks to understand how we can learn from them. And this is from John himself, uh, that the up, up till now it's only been available on BBC and Apple podcasts. And, uh, it will be available to everyone everywhere on January 25th and people can subscribe now wherever they subscribe to podcasts or, uh, but they'll be able to get episodes on every format on the 25th. And, uh, there will definitely be a trail up by, uh, by January 4th when this is coming out. And, uh, when it comes out on the 25th, it'll be the whole series. And, um, I know that description. I, I wish the, the the description captured a little bit more of the I don't know the humor and the intelligence of what he does because that makes it sound like a really like a bummer and I've, nothing that he's <laughs> done has ever felt like a bummer or like uh, I don't know it just he brings a really nuanced and humorous not humorous like making jokes but like I feel like a sense of humor and a sense of sympathy go together you know it's like a yeah. a movie about a serious topic that 
doesn't have that that has some humor in it that is based in that topic is richer and i feel like that's yeah. just the, that's what what he brings yeah. so cool yeah so yeah so uh yeah it was it was great to have him on i'm so yeah i i think i think we just leveled up for for 2022 we you know yeah. we've raised no. uh, yeah. raised our, our bar for <laughs> guests so <laughs> now we don't have to dust off my friends over and over again we can actually get real people uh, your friends are your friends are real people <laughs> i know i'm kidding you know uh i love, I love my friends well They're i know great. Look, we want to talk about yeah. your your newest friend the guy who's been hanging out around your theater and uh you know showing you know, showing films and with little little uh, little dicky Link letter? Is that? <laughs> I've never met him. <laughs> Come on. He's around. He's very, he's around. He's very nice. But the problem is there's always like a mob of people that surround, like the see, fans see, that surround him. So his, I just kind of like back away and be like, I'm going to leave this man alone. You're his friend already and he doesn't know it. You're the guy <laughs> who is giving him space. Like you're keeping the, the you're keeping the theater that he loves running. You're doing your job. <laughs> And you know that yeah, when the time yeah. comes to actually sit down and have a like, have a real conversation, you know you're there for each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks everyone for for hanging out for this episode. Um, we have something kind of exciting planned for next week. Uh, we're we're actually going to be putting out an episode that is. Not really about a particular film, but more uh, just sort of like, let's just say a a beginning of the year catch up. And, you know, we're just going to unpack some of the things, maybe unspoken agreements that that have colored the way we do the show and maybe explain some of the ways that we approach or don't approach certain films and certain topics is that is that a good way of explaining what we're going to be doing next week Brian? yeah basically we're doing sort of like maybe what we should have done at the beginning which is sort of explain sort of the types of movies we talk about why we talk about them that you know and just sort of like how you and i are very different <laughs> in ways that we unpack movies in certain ways and and then just also yeah, just sort of like everything, kind of just like how the world is wrong works and sort of the types of things we are doing on it or have done or will do. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. going to be <laughs> it's going to be informative. It's going to be full of uh of insights. It's going to be hilariously funny. <laughs> uh, it might be our best episode. I think it might be our best episode yet. <laughs> Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> and of course, uh, if you are listening to this and you have questions that you'd like us to bring up uh, or disc- uh, discuss or address when we ha- record that episode, please, please uh, write to us at contact at the world is wrong podcast.com. Our website is www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast and on Twitter at world is wrong pod. And that's the fact, Jack. Um, <laughs> are we done? I think we're, do- we're done. Well then let me just say folks, 
that as we enter Gregorian 2022, please try to remember that wherever you are, the world is wrong and it is probably wrong about you. the world is wrong we want to avoid being wrong as much as possible uh, <laughs> right even though we have a whole episode with me mispronouncing donald donald's yes. gleason's name but now that's corrected so i mean it's not the easiest no, I, I give talks in ireland i sort of do book book readings in ireland and you wouldn't believe the disparity between the way people's names are spelt and pronounced in ireland it's not just donald it's it's many people well that's what makes it interesting Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, m- my name is Andras, and nobody pronounces it correctly. So. <laughs> right. I'm used to it. German. Uh, Hungarian. It's actually Andras. Oh. Andras. Oh, wow. But I'm not Hungarian. I was just named after Hungarian. My, my, who, oh. My father was, was, uh, it was my father's mentor. My father was a dream psychologist. And oh. uh, his mentor was a Hungarian man named Andras Angel. 
Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, wow. Is, is your father like a... I mean, I'm interested in dream psychology. I don't... Like, I, don't, I haven't come to any big conclusion about whether or not it's, uh, you know, like how much you can read into dreams or not. But I'd be fascinated. Like, it's a fascinating thing to to study. Well, his his real focus was using dreams in education. And mm-hmm. he wrote many books in the 60s and 70s <clears throat> about how psychology uses dreams to diagnose illness, but you can use the same strategies for enhancing a positive experience of education. And he right. led uh, dream seminars in uh, sort of interdisciplinary studies. So there'd be like a history teacher, an English teacher, and my father having seminars all around, you know, Elizabethan England. And so wow. there'd be a written element, there would be the historical element, and then the students would document their dreams, write their dreams down during this course. And once a week, my father would read the dreams out without saying who the author was. Mm -hmm. And then everyone in the class would interpret it as if it was their dream. Like if this was my dream, it would mean this. And if this was my dream, it would mean that. And then at the end, the the dreamer was outed and they got to say how not only what their dream meant to them, but now what the dream meant to them, having got the reflection from the whole group. Um, Oh, interesting. And uh, yeah, and so that was you know, highly formative for me. And so yeah, dreams are dreams are my legacy. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So but I'm supposed to yeah. be interviewing you, you pathological interviewer. You. Okay. <laughs> right. Sorry. No, no. Actually, it's so funny. I bet everyone has this when we're listening to your books or reading your books. There's this sense of. I really wish she would focus on the interesting things in my life like this and also feeling like, oh, my God, I hope he never focuses on the, the interesting things in my <laughs> life like this. Right. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure uh, you're yeah. constantly being uh, invited to tell stories that uh, that people think are important that may not be your thing. That Yeah, that happens. It's funny. After the Many Stoic Goats came out, I got a lot of people contacting me to say that they were being spied on by the intelligence services. Like I, I got a really surprising number of people saying that. And uh, I mean, I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a psychosis. Um, but sorry, that's my dog running around going crazy. Um, yeah. Um, so I didn't do those stories. Yeah, I get, as I was listening to it, I just thought, oh, well, I would be really curious what you would make the... I grew up at the Evergreen State College where my father taught his dream seminars. And there's all kinds of interesting conspiracy theories about how the college was started with money from uh, the UC schools when Reagan was there, uh-huh. was the governor, to try and fund a liberal arts college that was far away from everyone that would siphon all the radical professors and radical students in 1970. Right. And then there's just been, there's so many odd stories that have come out of Evergreen. And it's also the, the college that launched Sub Pop and Nirvana and Riot Girl huh. and all of this cultural, uh, I don't know, exciting cultural stuff that uh, that is now ubiquitous, but was pretty obscure right. at the time. So, oh, how interesting. But right. 
we're here to talk about your your film. So let's 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 switch the focus because uh, we could go down a very deep rabbit hole there. Hi, I'm Brian, and I'm AJ, and we have a podcast called The Director's Wall, examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.